This is the Compiling Podcast with Rob Z and Friends, where I talk to technical experts about their day-to-day work and what they do in between. For more information, visit compiling.publicgeeking.com. Thanks for listening. This is the Compiling Podcast with Rob Z and Friends. I'm Rob Z. Today, I get to talk to Lorinda Brandon, who is the Vice President of Software Engineering for BetterCloud. I've known Lorinda for a number of years now. I mean, even before we worked together at Mashery, she was someone I actively sought out at conferences and events. I deeply admire her pragmatic perspective on the world, and I'm always especially impressed and inspired by her optimism and focus on the human side of everything. Now, you'll hear that today as we talk about the current state of software management and the push and pull between leadership and developers as we continue to debate this whole return to the office and how to keep organizational culture healthy and thriving. But as we segue into her current pursuit of a degree in archaeology, it becomes absolutely clear that these two areas of her life are actually really tightly intertwined and they influence and inform each other in rather surprising ways. I can't wait for you to hear all this, so let's go. So yeah, no, this is this is I've been I've been looking forward to this one since you said yes. So yeah, I'm excited. So I know who you are. Tell everybody else who's listening who you are. Okay, I am Lorinda Brandon, um, sometimes called Lindy by various folks in the industry. Um, <laughs> I'm the VP of Engineering at BetterCloud, so I manage the software development organization, which includes all the developers and estets. And um, what else do you want to know about me? I I think part of what we're going to talk about is I'm also a a student at Colorado State University, getting my second degree there. I can't wait to get to that. We'll we'll, we'll get to that. But we have to get through (laughs) that. We got to get through the tech and and the the business related stuff first, right? Part, you know, business in the front, party in the back. So with that in mind, though, I mean, okay, so you're, you're the VP of software development. You're in charge of hiring and helping to you know, put the staff together, make sure everything's in place, put that strategy together for all of that. And I mean, a lot of changes happened in the recent, first, obviously since 2020 with, with the lockdowns and everything right. and a, a shift toward remote work. But now we're still feeling, I think, kind of the reverberations of that. Um, in terms of, you know, there's been a lot of layoffs and stuff going on. So, like, from your perspective, just kind of at that 25,000-foot level, how are things looking for the software engineering industry and, and software development as a career? Oh, I think they're fine. I think, you know, there's a – if you haven't been through cycles like this before, things dip. They, oh. There's an ebb and flow to every industry every industry. It's like my third or fourth and, downturn. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so I think, you know, we've been through hard times before and honestly, um, there's, there's one thing that I have come to realize that maybe we all knew, but didn't really realize the implications of is how insular the tech world has become. So we used to build software back in the day. So I'm really old and I've been doing this for 40 years. So, like some of what I say is going to sound like ancient history. You're a veteran. But, um, we, we, um, 
I like to consider this an accomplishment. I not only am a woman in tech, but I've survived 40 years in this industry. Yeah. But I, it gives me a perspective of how it's changed, right? So we used to build software for people doing other things, you know, insurance adjusters and doctors. And like we used to build software for other people who needed to get more efficient at their work. Now we build software for software companies. And so we end up in this like insular thing, right? So when the industry starts to, when any part of the industry starts to get constrained or say, ah, we overhired during the pandemic, we, we had a big burst of online activity, right? Like, you know, Zoom was like a huge boom, right? Huge. In the middle of the pandemic. And so you look at those companies, not that Zoom is the instigator of any of this. <laughs> Sorry, Zoom, I don't mean it that way. But like you look at these companies who surged during the pandemic because their business was surging. And then they start to go, whoa, wait a minute. You know, now our business is getting a little bit smaller. We're all reliant on each other. We've created our own economy. Software is its own economy. That's true. And so when software companies start to have trouble, other software companies have trouble because we're all relying on, we're building software for each other, really. And so it's created this like, you know, it, it hit me like a ton of bricks because I was watching the news and they were talking about jobs are up, unemployment is down. And yet in the tech world, everybody's getting laid off. Everybody's like on LinkedIn saying, Hey, I don't normally say stuff like this, but I'm about to lose my house. Right. Uh, and so we're living in our own economy that the rest of the world is not living in, which I think is really interesting. That's, that's an interesting point of view. Cause I, I feel like, I mean, I, I, okay. I haven't been in the industry quite as long as you have, but I mean, like I'm marking 25 years here and you know, like 25 years. Those are creds. Those are creds. Yeah. That I'm counts. Going with that. It counts. Yeah. Uh, you know, <laughs> Uh, but like you know, twenty five years ago, when you know the dot com boom and 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 bust happened, like it was it was sort of a similar. Oh my god, I just lost my train of thought. That is the worst thing. Well, that you're going to say it was a similar moment because everybody was questioning, should I be a software developer? Well, it was a similar because... moment. Yeah, but, it, but I saw. I mean, like it was the same kind of the the, the same kind of boom and bust. Like I said, I've been through like what three or four of these now in my career, and yeah, I mean, like at that time, it, it did feel like is this is this the direction we want to go? And yet, it still turned around, and everything was eventually okay. Oh, this is what this is it. So like that's when I first really realized this concept of it being a separate economy because even then even though we had the dot-com bust and it brought down a lot of other parts of the economy at the time like i really did feel like that was insular to the tech industry because when i talk about the bust in 2000 like and i talk about it with my non-tech friends it's not the same experience so you're absolutely right and then we talked about like you know apis and the api economy and the technology i mean you're right it's its own economy it's its own thing and we rally like I think if you really look at what's happening right now, so generative AI, right? Everybody is talking about it, but everybody's talking about it for a reason. It is a door opening. Mm. And it's just like when we all started building, you know, on the web, right? And I remember when we didn't. Um, <laughs> but like when we all started doing that and then the dot-com boom, uh, bust came and we were like, 
okay, that was all terrible. What a bad idea. And then we rallied and we said, no, wait a minute. It's just how we were doing it. It's just the way we were approaching it. There's a different, more important way that we can approach this field. And so I guess to your earlier question of how do we want the audience to hear this, it's don't worry. There's always another avenue for technology. Mm -hmm. There's always another growth opportunity. So we're at this point where, okay, the things that mattered two years ago and were causing all of these surges, not so much anymore. Yep. But there's a whole other set of doors opening. And so go through those doors. Don't get stuck. If there's one piece of advice I would give developers that I often give developers who work for me is don't paint yourself into a corner. Don't get religious about anything mm -hmm. that you're doing or building or any technology because this changes all the time. I've been doing this for four decades and it just constantly evolves and shifts and you got to just go with it and not, or lead it, right? But you be either uh, somebody who's riding that tide or somebody who's jumping into the waves, but, but like, don't be afraid of it and don't get too stuck in the corner you're in because that's when you defeat yourself. That's when you lose sight of what's important about this field. There was a an article that was on Hacker News in the last couple days where the author, I can't remember the author's name, I'll, I'll put it in the show links, um, but basically he said that over the past 20 years, everything he's done is now either deprecated or technical debt, right? Because like, and, and one of the examples he used was a few years ago, Ruby on Rails was a huge framework. Everybody was using huge. it ginormous and now it's basically technical debt as they're trying to switch it from ruby on rails to whatever the new hotness is right and so like when you look back at this career as a developer my you know similar advice you know i always tell people who are like i'm a ruby developer don't be a ruby developer be a developer don't be a ruby programmer go learn to be a that's programmer right. you know like stay that's on top right of that's exactly it you can learn any technology it's it that is not the key to your success and i think um you know, it's a little bit, you've got to develop this sort of Zen philosophy in living in this, in this industry. I'm, I'm doing what's right for today. I'm in the moment and it's not going to be right 10 years from now, but that doesn't mean that the decision I made today is the wrong decision. It's just the decision that was applicable now. It's the right decision for today. Exactly. That's right. So, you know, talking about <laughs> the promise of the internet and all of this stuff, you know, for years and years, we've talked about like, hey, ubiquitous networking is going to allow us to work from everywhere. And then, you know, we can even do things like can't really afford to go to college, can't really afford to go live in the dorms. Cool. You can learn remote. And we have all these great remote learning things. And it was something that had been talked about in kind of a nice way and been implemented, you know, here and there. And then the lockdowns happened and everybody was forced into this. Right. And like now we're starting to come out and what the impression that you get if you read the tech news and the tech press is that um, a lot of companies are starting to say, look, we want you back in the office. And there's a lot of pushback from the technical team saying, why bother? I can I during the lockdowns, during the pandemic, I moved. I, I actually am in a much more comfortable location. I don't want to have to come back in the office. So I guess my question to you is, from your perspective, are you. I don't want to ask about this specifically with your particular <laughs> situation. So I'm going to ask in general, 
are you hearing a lot of this need to go back to the office from the leadership and the executive team? And what is the rationale to that? And how are you helping and how are you hearing other folks helping to navigate through this idea of like, you know, pushing back on, on going back to the office and like, where, where do you stand on that? And what's your advice on that? How are you handling that? Yeah. Yeah. Just talk about it. Talk I, don't, about I don't know, how, it. I don't know um, how, so, to, how to couch that. Yeah. <laughs> I know <laughs> because it shouldn't be controversial, but it, it is. It really isn't. Um, yeah. So, okay. So I'll talk about first, my personal stance on it is I want to hire the best people. I don't care where they are. Yeah. And it's amazing. You know, there's this, I worked for a guy one time who will remain nameless. <laughs> pissed me off incredibly when he said this, but he basically said any developer who's any good moves to the Bay Area. Oh. So oh. there's no point in hiring anybody outside the Bay Area. And I was like, are you kidding? Yeah, that's bullshit. And so you're, you're missing <laughs> out on some great talent, living great lives, if you don't have a remote option, in my opinion. So I want to hire the best people, and I don't care where they are. I live in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and I am the only better plotter who lives here. <laughs> and so that's cool. I'm, I think I'm effective at my job. Nobody's fired me yet. Um, and so that's my personal view on it. I'm happier working where I love to live. And I have moved twice to places to for work. And I wasn't happy in either place. And so you're just sort of suffering through it because you're there for the work. Just to, keep, and just to get the paycheck. that's not rewarding. Yeah. Um, and so that's my personal stance. What I am hearing is, yes, there is a, we don't have a better cloud. We don't have a mandate. You have to work in the office, except for we're building out our Mexico City location. And it doesn't have, because it's a brand new office, we feel like, it doesn't have a culture yet. It doesn't mm -hmm. have a, they don't know each other. And do we want to like establish that office as if we're in a pandemic, right? So I started working at Better Cloud when people were still a little iffy about traveling and, you know, and so I haven't met a lot of people who work in my org and they haven't met each other. And there is a part of you that goes, I miss that i yeah. miss being in person but what are the drivers that force us together so that's where i hear the conversations happening at the executive level is how do we create a compelling reason to come together we don't want to force people you must come to the office this many days a week but we do want people to feel encouraged to get together a whiteboard get together and have lunch, get together and have, you know, an architectural design offsite, right? For a couple sure, of days, because sure. you get a lot more done. You can have these conversations, you get it done, it's over with. And you're not, you're not just a head talking to another head. You know, I always joke that the one thing that we don't know about each other is how tall we all are. <laughs> That's true. Right? right? So you and I have met in person. Yeah. So you know, I'm pretty short, but people aren't really ready for that because I don't, <laughs> they just assume I'm a normal height. And then you meet me and you go, wow, she's like a midget. So um, <laughs> I'm not quite that short. No, I'm not quite that short. short. Wow. I, I, um, hmm. 
Well, okay. So let me, I mean, I think, so I think there's an encouragement to that. I, if I could just make one more point, yeah, yeah. because uh, one of the things as a, so I have about 95 people in my organization and we're all over the place. Um, and one of the things that I find a little difficult to navigate, and again, happy in Albuquerque, not moving to any place where I have to work in an office, but I find that I'm used to pre, pre-pandemic, I'm used to being able to kind of walk around the office or even hang out at my desk, but see that, oh, group of people is all getting together and looking very urgent and gathering around a whiteboard and looking like maybe something <laughs> terrible is happening. I won't bother them, but now I know, and I can just kind of make sure they've got what they need. And if they need my help, or maybe it looks like I need to go message something to somebody like I, you understood the dynamics of the teams. You understood the day they were having, you were more aware of the people who work for you. And now what I struggle with is Slack is my office. Mm -hmm. And so the only way that I can get that sense of how is this team having a terrible day? Is this team having a great day? How are the dynamics on these teams? And like, I'm not looking to see like watching over people to see who's good, who's bad, who's asking questions, who's not answering questions, who's not answering anybody. Like, I'm not looking for that. I just, does anybody need me? Like, how can I help in some way? And because I can't see them, I have to just sort of wander around Slack channels is my equivalent of the old managed by walking around, you know? And it's, it's a weird, it's weird. It's different. And it's something that I think we all have to figure out how to navigate that as a leader at the leadership level, because it's really hard to do things to help an organization or to, you know, adjust cultural problems if you can't see them. And people don't tend to show up, like, especially because these days you have to set up time on a calendar. You can't just walk up to me in the lunchroom and say, hey, you know, blah, 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 there's something you should know. You have to put time on my calendar. That's a very formal thing. Yeah. And now you've interrupted my day. And you feel like you need to bring me something important. And I don't care. Like, just show up and tell me about your dog. But <laughs> it's not the same interaction. And it's yeah. much harder, I think, as a leader to know how is your org and what is your relationship to them and how are they, what is their relationship to each other and are they getting what they need? It's much harder in a remote environment. Yeah, I, I think about that as degrees of communication because I've always given this a lot of thought in terms of from a content perspective. Like, you got straight text, but it's really hard in the straight text to convey emotion and sarcasm and stuff like that. Which is why you know on forums and stuff now we've got the backslash s to indicate we're saying things sarcastically and stuff like that. And then you've got this format where it's just voice, but it's still voice plus the content itself. But now I'm adding emotion. I'm, I am able to add that. But even just having that without seeing someone's face and seeing, like, you know, I can say something one way and it sounds a way to the people listening. But if you're looking at me and I'm giving you a particular face, you know, I mean it in a different way. Right. So, like, it's it's those kind of degrees of communication and being able to be in the same room as someone and, and get those aspects you can't get in a 2D 
window. I can sort of, I understand that. That actually makes sense. But then at the same time, you talked about the cultural aspects and, you know, looking and seeing people grouped together and knowing that maybe there's something going on. I always, I love to tell the story that back in the day when I managed an API program for an email marketing company, I knew the severity of the problem that I had just created as a developer, knowing how many engineers were hovering around my desk. If it was one engineer, it was no big deal, right? I once had a situation where my API, I didn't build it, I just managed it, brought down the entire system, and I had four, five, I think I had as many as six at one point, all just kind of hovering around saying, are you done with this? Like, can I help you? Can I do this? And that's how you know something's going on. But to your point, in a Slack channel, rather than having to get up and walk over, having to find me, like, they can just immediately hit me. We can start, you know, they can show me logs and all that. So I can see immediately what's going on. And I feel like from a developer standpoint or from a technical standpoint, there actually is a lot of culture that exists within those channels. But I see what you're saying in terms of like from a management standpoint, but you don't feel like you're seeing. So like, how do you how do you connect those two? Yeah, so I I absolutely agree with you. There's a ton of culture and interaction and dynamics that happen in Slack. In fact, when I when I worked at Twilio, I <laughs> we would be all sitting in an open office, open space. I could see everybody. They were sitting next to each other, and it was very quiet. Yes, and yes. They are talking to each other all day long on Slack. Right? They're not actually chatting because you're in an open office so their that whole their dynamics their culture their interactions the questions the knowledge sharing all of that's happening on slack here's the challenge and i i'll say this but i don't want anybody to think i'm whining about this. <laughs> it's gonna sound it's gonna sound whiny but um as a as a vp you can't join all the team slack channels no because then they feel like I can't actually ask this question because what if Florinda's watching? And I am totally not there judging anything, but I understand how that feels. It feels like I'm hovering over them while they work. I totally get that. So I can't be there, which means I can't see anything. And that, that is where I rely, I'm very open about that, my, my sense of FOMO, and uh, my teams know that, and they also know <laughs> that I totally support their right to not have me in their channels. Yeah. And so if they, I've told them, if you want me in your channel, invite me, I will always join. If you don't want me in your channel, I'm cool, that doesn't, I'm fine with that, I get it. And so, but it means that I, I find other ways to interact with the engineers outside of that environment, just so I can see how they're doing. You can kind of get a sense of, you know, are they, are they excited about what they're working on? Are they not excited about what they're working on? Are they a little mad at somebody else? Like you can get a sense of it by just sort of casually pinging, Mm -hmm. right. And trying not to scare them. Um, But I also have to rely on the managers and the engineering directors to tell me what's going on. And so it's my own FOMO, it's my own problem, but I do think that that's, I understand why so many executive leadership teams are looking around and saying, how do I get people back? Because I can't see anything. And it's not that you're trying to watch them, you're trying to see, do I have a healthy company? 
Do I have a healthy organization? Is there something they need from me? Are people Are happy? You, right you can't see yeah. anything. Well, I mean, so in the absence of that, I mean, there's been even prior to the lockdowns, the pandemic and everything, remote work and everything, there is a move toward trying to measure developer productivity, right? So we talked about like agile and we talk about, you know, burn down rates and, you know, the, the tech debt and all that kind of stuff and the backlogs and whatnot. <clears throat> Excuse me. And then, you know, there's all, but you know, there's, how can I say this? There's a company that I've, I've talked to in the past where their focus was not so much on, those kinds of like management metrics, they were looking at developer happiness as a, a metric and, and still yeah. using that as mapped to productivity. So with all of that, like how are you approaching these metrics and what are you like, what are you seeing for that? And does this help at all in this remote world? Yeah, it's a very interesting space and it's a probably a trigger conversation for me but oh so, yeah uh, it's, it is for a lot of engineering say, managers and a lot of engineers themselves i'm aware it, it is it is uh so the company has we have engineering kpis and the company does track them and i do my thing of providing kpi metrics and my analysis of why things are happening the way they're happening i have made it very clear though to the leaders who work for me that they're these are not performance metrics i don't want anybody to sit down with a developer and say well i noticed you only had 2.5 coding days last week like <laughs> that is not a conversation <laughs> that chills. Gonna have. <laughs> now you can look at it at an organizational level there are some things that like again from an org level if i can see that wow our the amount of time we have to code is not as high as it should be for what we're asking the developers to do. What are we doing? Are we getting in their way? Are we setting up a lot of meetings? Are we making them go to tons of training and filling up their backlog? Like, what is it that we're doing that gets in their way? That I think is a valuable way to look at engineering metrics. Totally. But to look at it at the individual Met the individual developer level is not a thing that I support or encourage anybody. In fact, I, it's not that I don't encourage it. I don't, I tell them do not do that. Um, and so, uh, so anyway, I, that's how I feel about I, it. <laughs> I, I would defend individual developer metrics and collecting that from the same standpoint though, of what you're saying with the aggregate organizational, because let's say if I'm looking at, I'm looking at the 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 burn down rates. I'm looking at the the time to live for new stuff. I'm looking at you know the amount of coding time you know dedicated toward things. If I see anomalies at an individual level, the question at that point doesn't become well, what's wrong with this person and how do we fix this person. The question becomes okay, what's going on that this is happening? Is it is it situational because they're actually on a different product or a project? I should say are they are they as you said are they doing some kind of training something else and that's kind of why they've been away from it and okay I can let that go. Or is there something going on in their life that's impacting them? And then it becomes an opportunity for you as a manager to kind of jump in and say, hey, let's have this. But I can also see the flip side of but, people being freaked out by that. <laughs> well, and also I'm going to push back on that in that, especially in this remote world, you got to build those relationships. You shouldn't need a mm. metric to tell you that this developer is struggling or hasn't delivered what they said they were going to deliver that's not a, you don't need a metric to tell you that that, that person true. works for you. And so 
you should have that relationship. You should know what's going on. And by the way, if they're ha if they're struggling and they don't feel comfortable telling you, that's a smell, right? You've got to fix that. Yeah. So I think I think that where I worry about using metrics at the individual level is that exactly that it, the way I'm looking at my people is through numbers, and that's what I don't want people to do. The other the other part though is like I do ask the managers of the individual engineering teams to look at the health of the interaction between their teams. So how long does it take your team, anybody, not any individual, but how long does a PR sit there before it's reviewed, right? Um, what kind of meaningful comments are being put onto these PRs? And so I wanna make sure that the teams are supporting each other and you can tell that by other sig you get signals in other ways as a manager, mm -hmm. but then you can go in and dive into the specifics by using some of the metrics tools that you've got at your at your disposal. But again, I it's about relationships and it's about human beings, and I really want that to be the first thing people go to, not the second thing people mm. go to. And that I mean, building those relationships completely doable remotely. Just as as you yep. point out, not quite as easy. I mean, I've been right. I've been remote this entire time. I, I it's one of these things where the reason I'm doing this podcast, and I think I may have said this on other on other episodes, and if I haven't, this is the first time everybody's hearing it. Part of the reason I'm doing this is because I work for myself and I work out of my home, and so I do miss those interactions. And it's something where when I interact with like I'm interacting with you right now, it's like, and when we're done with this call, I'm going to be on cloud nine for the rest of the day. I was kind of, you know, low energy until we got here. And now I know I'm going to be in cloud nine for the rest of the day because I've had this social interaction. I never, as a technologist, yeah. I'm so used to being so embedded in the code. I don't think that much about how important that is. And then I finally like interact with other folks. And I'm like, oh my God, I've been depressed. Like, oh, right. yeah. So like how. Uh, right. You don't even realize that that's happening to you. I, I will say that like. I make an effort when I'm traveling around, you know, part of the benefit of being a remote organization is that there's somebody everywhere. That's right? true. So um, I, my husband and I went to Austin for just our own personal, like little vacation. And I have, I have four developers there. So I pinged them and I said, Hey, let's go out to dinner. We've never met. None of us have ever met. Let's go out to dinner and meet each other. And uh, it's not, there's no work thing. I'm just in town. And so why not? And so I think you've got to also make the effort to take advantage of those moments if you're working in a remote organization. Yeah. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Welcome to the break. Now, this is where I'd put some kind of sponsorship placement if I had one. To get sponsors, however, I first need to build an audience. And this is a way that you can contribute significantly to the success of this podcast with very little effort. So I have a couple favors to ask. First, if you're enjoying these episodes, please share this podcast with your friends and colleagues. Send them a link to compiling.publicgeeking.com and encourage them to give it a listen. Not only will it help me out, but since my goal is to educate, inform, and entertain everyone who listens to this podcast, I hope it'll bring your friends and colleagues value as well. Second, I actually do want to hear your feedback. I produce these podcasts by myself, and 
good feedback on topics, guests, the questions I ask, and more is frankly kind of hard to come by. For that matter, how does this podcast even sound wherever you're listening? Is the volume good enough? Do you have any tips that may improve the sound quality? Good critical feedback like this not only helps me improve, it provides a better experience for everyone listening. To send feedback, please visit compiling.publicgeeking.com forward slash support to find the ways to get a hold of me. I look forward to hearing from you. Thank you again so much for listening. Back to the show. All right, I'm going to switch gears a little bit here because we've talked a lot about culture. We've talked about how important people are to you. And I know that this ties into what I think is the most exciting topic today. You are studying archaeology. You went back to college to get your second degree. To, you're getting your second degree in archaeology. So first of all, I want to understand like what what drove you to do this? Why why did you want to go back to school? <laughs> um so when I went to college the first time, I am not one of those people who is like, oh, I'm gonna get a double major and I'm gonna <laughs> just like like that's not me. I have a lot of other things I wanted to do when I was 19. So Fair school enough. was one and lots of other things that piled <laughs> on top of that. So I wasn't gonna be a double major. But I, I took, um, I was majoring in art history, which I did end up getting a degree in. And I know I ended up in technology. Everybody told me art history isn't a thing you're going to get a job with. And I graduated so, with anyway, a degree in journalism. So, I mean, um, <laughs> yeah, so who knows? Yeah. Yeah. I think there's a lot of us out here in the tech yeah. world. Um, but I had to take anthropology classes as part of the degree. And I took cultural anthropology and I took archaeology and I loved them. Mm. And I considered switching my major. And I will admit, I was like in my junior year and I was really too lazy to switch my major. So I was like, nah, 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 I'll just get my degree in art history. So I did. And I've always wondered not that I ended up being an art historian, obviously, but <laughs> would I have ended up doing something different if I had been an archae uh, an archaeology or anthropology major? Like, would I have done, would I have gone into a different discipline and not ever wandered into tech? And I also just, our, the world is so different from when I went to college, mm. and the technology behind archaeology now is so incredible. We can tell so much and it's so exciting. And so I just, I just uh, decided to go back to school. I just wanted to get that degree and have no regrets. And like, I have no plans to do, to get a job. Although, hey, anybody who's, uh, you know, hiring an archaeology, <laughs> maybe, maybe call me. But um, I just wanted to learn it. I just felt like I wanted to learn it. And the, best way to learn it is not to read blogs, but to put yourself on the hook and yeah. say, I'm going to get a degree. So that means I have assignments and I have things I have to do and stuff I have to learn and challenges. Like I just, I, you have to take a lot of science by the way. Of course. So I had to get a microscope and make slides and I'm in my kitchen, like putting <laughs> slides together and taking pictures under the microscope. And like, you got to, I just wanted to challenge myself and also 
learn this thing I regretted not learning the first time around. So you're 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 going back to school. You're now you're going through these classes. Is there a particular focus that you are taking? Is it a specific culture, a specific time period, a specific region? Like what is there anything where you're starting to zero in and say, like, this is really the fascinating stuff to me? Yeah, totally. And um and now I'm toying with much to my husband's chagrin. Should I get my master's so that I can really just focus on this one thing? Because <laughs> you know, you get a bachelor's and it's a much broader and yeah. like set of things you've got to take. And I, but I'm like, if I got my master's, I could just take classes in this one thing. But yeah, I am fascinated, fascinated by Neanderthal culture. And, Interesting. Um, yeah. The, the, what our current technology has taught us about Neanderthals is incredible and so fascinating. They really? are not what you think. Um, and they are, they had a rich culture. They had caring communities that they took care of each other when they were injured. We have, we have skeletons that have survived that had injuries that had healed. And this person lived 20 years after debilitating injuries that meant he could barely walk. He only had one arm. I, there's a, there's a skeleton that actually has evidence of they amputated his arm um, at the elbow. Wow. So now here is, here is a community 60,000 years ago who understood this arm won't heal. I need to amputate it. And by the way, somehow they did that in a way that he did not get an infection and die. He lived for 20 years after that. He was deaf. Like his whole community had to take care of him yeah. in that environment. And they did. And he lived and he was cared for. He survived. And so you you go, that is who we are today yeah. as well, right? We take care of each other even when it's not in our, biologically speaking, as a community, as a species, it's not always in our best interest to have a medic tent in the middle of a battlefield, but we do, but we do because we take care of each other and we did 60,000 years ago when Neanderthals were roaming the earth. And so I just find Neanderthal culture, we've, there's, there's flutes that we found that they made that we can still play, that still make music. Um, they, they were, there's decorative, like there's burials actually where they, they buried people, which means they honored, they had a sense of life and death. They honored their community members. And there's like a burial where this person was buried with, with um, flowers uh, laid on top of them because there's still the pollen greens there. So there's like this rich culture that we're still examining and going, they are not cavemen. They yeah, are not okay. primitive. They had hyoid bones. They could talk. They, they were community community driven communicating human beings that we still carry in our own Absolutely. DNA. So they're not extinct. And it's like all this stuff, like you just put it all together. And you go, Oh my God, I got to get my master's in this. <laughs> well, and the, I, this is fascinating because I mean, so, so th this is exactly right. When you think about the Neanderthals, these are like the classic cavemen, right? This is how, you know, 
the old folks who did anthropology and archaeology. Yeah, I mean, they they had this idea they were savages and like, you know, they couldn't We're homo sapiens, meaning thinking, you know, thinking humanoid. Right. And they were Neanderthalists because they were found in, I want to say the Neanderthal Valley or something like that. The Neanderthal Valley. Yeah. Yeah. So but like even I, 23andMe says I have some percentage of Neanderthal in me, which is kind of pretty cool. So like they didn't die out per se they integrated we're not same with the Denov- i'm gonna get this wrong Den- Denov- denisovan. Denisovans. denisovan right so like i i feel like we've we've always believed that the neanderthals were some separate hominid a few years ago i got an opportunity to go down to south africa i went to johannesburg and went to the cradle of humankind which was oh, so cool. mind-blowing. It just completely, like, and for the next, like, year or two, I was absolutely obsessed with, like, human history. Because, you know, it was, uh, I think it was Australopithecus that they found them. There was early hominids yes. that were very, very different from us, but still, like, our shared ancestry with all these. And, and they have this really amazing museum where they kind of take you through the whole history of humankind from, you know, basically that point to now and show all these different things. And again, even there, you're seeing that they're talking about how these different groups kind of just died off. But in truth, we're seeing all this evidence suggesting that, no, we, we carry that with us. That's right. We evolved with them. Yeah. And so I, I find that all very fascinating. And I, yeah, so there's, um, there's a, been a lot of new findings mm-hmm. about Neanderthals, and they're still excavating a lot of the sites. Um, and so, yeah, that that is that captured my heart somehow. Oh, I, I guess, get that. Yeah, it, it's mind. I mean, I just I just read an article the other day saying that they've now found evidence of um, Neanderthal. Uh, Neanderthals having uh, built boats and done some sailing to go to different locations. And then like they argue that look prior to Homo sapiens, we had to have done this a lot. How else did we get Floriana in, in those islands? Like how do we get all these different right. hominid species that are very, very, very close to human species in all these different places? And just the fact that we find, so first of all, you know, you just have to respect the fact that they were, they roamed this earth for 300,000 years. You know, we've been here for what, 50 and we're burning the planet yeah. down. So like, yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately, um, yeah. But, it's not laughable. But also there's evidence of them sharing camping sites, you know, with not only with other humanoid species, but also with each other, mm-hmm. different communities of Neanderthals. But yes, they, they had to have, there is evidence that they were making tools with, materials that were not available in that region that we found the tools. So that means they are traveling, they're trading, they're, they're exploring their world. And there is so much to learn. And, and what I love about this particular part of archaeology is that there is so much to learn. And we're oh. just now starting to uncover it. So every day, you can find another article about some new finding, some new thing that's that's fascinating to learn. Um, there's a really, really good book. If you haven't read it, since you sound like you are also interested oh, yeah. in this stuff, um, called Kindred. I don't know if you've ever read no, that. No, I'm not it's familiar a, with that one. I'll send you. I'll send you a link so you can put it in your program notes. Please, but, please. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a, written by an archaeologist who studied Neanderthals, and it is so 
it is really fascinating um, because what she's talking about in that book is the commonalities between who we are now and who Neanderthals were and how we need to think of them as our kindred, really? not as some separate species. But these are people who lived very much like, you know, obviously in different times and different circumstances, but they they had communities, they shared food, they, they you know, um, taught each other skills, they shared materials, they cared for their sick, um, and they honored their dead. And it's like, these are people that loved each other. Yeah. And we don't classify them that way. We don't think of them as emotional beings, but they were, or they would never have done the things we see evidence of them doing. And so I just find that so fascinating. But anyway, I'll send you the link so that Please. you can yeah. uh, put so, that in your notes. I mean, what you're, what you're uncovering with this. So, I mean, we, we talked, we started off by talking about all the advances in technology, like LIDAR and you know, laser scanning of new areas. And like, because of that, they're doing like laser scans from airplanes and they're able to find in the jungles, like, you know, Mayan yes, temples that haven't temples been found. Old, old cities. That's amazing. Yeah. Right. But like, now that we have this technology and we're, you know, or DNA technology, the reason we know so much about, you know, the fact that we still have Neanderthal blood nuts is because we've been doing all this, you know, DNA matching and everything. So with these new technologies coming out, not only is it allowing us to uncover new and interesting things, but I feel like um, when I took an anthropology course in, in college, we talked a lot about um, the Eurocentrism of anthropology and a lot yeah. of this kind of, uh, I don't I don't know how to, how to, how to, phrase this but it's this idea like we we think of them as cavemen and you know savage but like in truth no there's all this other evidence and i mean i i kind of find it hard to believe that evidence is new right like some of it i feel just was there and because some of these folks finding it had a preconceived notion they didn't interpret it that way so like are you seeing more of that coming through in your studies like how how are how are modern archaeology totally. and anthropology you know professors and, and experts dealing with that oh it's such a big thing in archaeology actually because not only was it eurocentric it was also uh androcentric yes. right so it was very male oriented so everything was interpreted in terms of white men would mm -hmm. <laughs> do this I gave a talk actually um, at Glucon last year about exactly that, right? So for example, the, uh, the ancient civilizations that you know and love that you learned about in high school and that you, know, you grow up knowing about don't include places like Great Zimbabwe, no. which was the wealthiest, the most uh, like uh, advanced architecturally at that same time, but in Zimbabwe. And so when archeologists found it, guess what? It was still inhabited by Africans mm -hmm. and their, their way of describing it back home, the, the explorers who found it, they wrote back home. It was like in the, I'm trying to remember the year, it was like early 1800s, I think. They wrote about their discovery and they were like, at some point, Europeans were here and they built this beautiful empire and then they must have deserted it and all the Africans moved into it. And it's like, what? 
what is that as a history, right? What are you talking about? And so it's, that's the stuff that has caused history to be so mangled. And what I love about these technologies is that they're objective, right? This is the fact it's not open to, I mean, you can interpret it obviously, but here's the actual data. And I think we're breaking through a bunch of those barriers, things like there were, there was a Viking warrior. There's another fun story. There was a Viking warrior uh, that was found, you know, burial site that was found buried with all kinds of, they were, it was obviously an esteemed warrior, all kinds of, you know, uh, weaponry and fancy decorative, you know, armor and clothing and very elaborate burial. Always assumed this was a guy. Mm-hmm. It's not. Then we did DNA testing. Not. It's a woman. And so there is this interpretation of the past that is so mangled. And mm-hmm. um, because we have new technologies, we can figure that out. I think the challenge in like when you're there's lots of classes around gender and archaeology and gender and anthropology. Um, and I've taken several of them and and a lot of the the challenge is getting the funding and the interest to go back and rediscover things. Yeah. To go back and re-examine things that we think we already know. And so <clears throat> there it also was a very male dominated in you know, field for a long time. And now there's lots more women coming into it and they're saying, wait a minute, I want to relook at that. Right. And I think what we really need is even more diversity across different ethnic groups and different races and like get everybody involved in this. um, So that we go back and say, does that make sense? Is that true? Can we look at that again? You know, and I, we have this very white male lens on our history as humans. Our entire history. And, Absolutely. And we have to look at what do we actually know versus what don't we know? Like I, in my glucon talk, I was showing like, Hey, here's some slides uh, or here's some images of what we thought was happening with um, uh, hunter gatherers in prehistory. Right. And it's the men making stone tools and going hunting and it's the women gathering herbs and cooking. And there's like zero, there's evidence all those things happen. There's zero evidence of who did it. Yeah. And so this concept that women sat around going, God, I, I wish I could tan this hide or chop these vegetables for dinner, but I can't. I need a guy to come home and make me a stone tool because I don't know how to make them. Like that is such a weird perception, uh-huh. right? And that's, but that's how we described our history. And so anyway, I, I feel like you're triggering me all over the oh, place. No, no, no. I'm going to trigger, trigger you a little <laughs> harder here too, because I mean, like this is, this is something that I'm fascinated in as well. I mean, my, I, within the last few years, I've always been really interested in California history, but that's now expanded into kind of understanding how California was formed based on a lot of the other things going on here in the Americas at the time. And so you think about like, what's happening with the Mayan culture and the Aztec culture and, you know, Coronado coming over and all that recording that Coronado Cortez coming over and all of that. And, and the impacts of that, everything that we really have about those cultures really does come through 
Cortez, the priests, the soldiers, all those folks who were down there and writing their diaries about the things they saw and then interpreting it through that lens. And so like we think of like Montezuma as this great big king who everybody adored and loved and all that. But like I can't help but wonder, are they looking at that because they're comparing him to the Spanish king and sort of that european conservatism and they're missing the point that actually he's more of a community leader here like there's all these interpretations that we don't we don't have right and like to your point about the who made those stone tools i mean like think about the women who came across america through the great immigration um who were pioneers who were out there like you know in the prairies and stuff like that like they didn't sit around waiting for their man to come home to help them fix things or build things they they couldn't so, like, we, right. we have, in fairly recent memory, examples of this, and yet we still ignore it because, I don't know, there's still a, a yeah. certain, it's a, it's a certain sense of, of, of what's embedded within our culture. Now, how, like, and the other thing you mentioned is the, the technology allows you to be objective, but you get to go through and interpret it. And this, to me, is really a big part of why diversity yeah. is important, because, like, yeah, the interpretations have to fit the facts, you can't interpret something that's outside of that. And then everything else you know is, as long as you are clear that it's conjecture and speculation, it's conjecture and speculation kind of safe. But if you leave that to one group, you wind up with these messed up stories that turn out to not be true. So the more perspectives you can get looking at, I mean, this is my argument for diversity everywhere, the more perspectives you can get looking at something, the closer you can get to truth and fact. How are they, I mean... I guess what I'm what I'm getting at here is with with archaeology and trying to impact this like is this something where it's a consistent movement there's a group of folks who are publishing and have all this information and are really doing this is this a general like is this is there a movement within archaeology to really enhance this diversity yeah. or is this actually something that everybody just kind of agrees on now Um there is definitely a move to enhance the diversity. There's also a move to to redefine what we think has been defined. Mm. So, for example, I took um, I took one of my class up uh, classes last semester was gender and archaeology, uh, gender and anthropology. Sorry, and so it was a little bit more focused on cultural anthropology, but. The really interesting thing was we think of gender as a permanent, like we think of it here in, in the U.S. as your gender is this, and it is this for your lifetime. Mm-hmm. And and so we're like, oh, gender identity, when I figure that out, I'm going to let my child I, you know, figure out what their gender identity is when the time comes. And that's a very... I don't even know if they they have that same kind of mind uh, or frame of mind in Europe or wherever, but it's it's definitely a way we interpret it here. However, there's like lots of studies where like there are societies, small, small societies of people like that are, are fairly isolated from other societies in like Africa and island countries where gender isn't that at all. Gender is actually age-based. So when you're a child, you're you're not having sex. You're not falling into a sexual role. You're not at reproductive stage. You're all just people. You do all the same things. You don't have to play different games. You don't have to wear different clothes. You don't 
you're not separated, you're just children. And then you go into your reproductive stage and you start figuring out where do I fall in here and who do I pair with? And then at some point you're no longer reproductive and now you're, you know, like me, you're just an old person. And so you, you go back to being genderless. And so it's a very interesting uh, concept. Yeah. I, should, I don't know if genderless is the right term, but you know what I mean? It's like you are just people with no particular gendered role or, or in like reproductive society. responsibility. <laughs> yeah. Because there's that yeah. aspect too. So, <laughs> exactly. And so, and so the tasks that, you know, if you are a community where everybody has to pitch in physically and do tasks, right? Mm -hmm. Then children and old people are actually a group that they aren't doing the heavy lifting, the running around and, you know, hunting large animals and butchering them. And, you know, you're not doing that because you're either too young or too old. So you fall into this like non-role specific life. And so they look at this as an evolving fluid thing. Sure. We talk about gender fluidity in our country, right? But this is like just how they view gender. It's always, it's fluid for everybody. It's fluid all the time. You go through different phases in your life when things are just different because you're a different age. And so you don't have to have these categories and this gendered perspective based on your bits your you biology know, or, your, or, whatever. or your sexual preferences yeah. or anything like that. It can be based on just generally where do you fit within the society? And it, I don't know, it's just an interesting to break it, to break out of the mold of how we think about things and recognize that that's not the only way to think yeah. about things. And everybody has a different approach it that bleeds into all the other things, right? That's a cultural anthropology viewpoint. But then you start looking at archeological artifacts and you go, maybe, maybe stone tools were made by all people within this age range. Maybe all the cooking was done by old people, male and female and whatever, you know, like they were just, they're just, their commonality is their age. If you start to look at these things differently and go, you know, I don't have an answer to this. I know people did this. I don't know which people did this. Wow. That's cool. That is really, that's, I mean, again, thinking about the Eurocentricity and androcentricity of this, there's still that sense of like whatever your personal experience is and whatever your personal culture is, whomever you are, you still are going to interpret this through kind of your own experiences and through your own things. And so it, how, one of the challenges I've had recently in the last few years is this idea of um, I've always known I didn't know everything but I'm starting to realize how little I actually know. And because of that, I'm trying to go through that process of being empathetic and thinking from other points of view. But to do that means not only breaking through my own point of view, but being able to understand what aspects are my point of view so that I can say, okay, you're, you're laying your own stuff on top of this. You've got to 
look at the facts. Right. What is there any like systematic way of doing that? No. no. Okay. <laughs> I mean, there's no I tricks. Mean, you know, in the end, <laughs> we're all people. We're all humans. Yeah. We all do this, and it is part of just look. This is probably how Neanderthals looked at the world too. Yeah. Their own experiences, their own eyes, right? So. You are who you are and how you interpret the world around you, in my opinion, is part of who you are. And so it, it's good to pause and reflect, I think, you know, and I think that's what archaeology, studying archaeology has really helped me to say, do I know that? Mm. Or or is am I conjecturing that? Am I interpreting something that isn't there, you know, so like you can tell that there is a tool and it is in this location and it was used for this thing. That's what you can tell. And so that's fascinating all by itself. Absolutely. Like just be happy to be fascinated by that and just go, a human made this tool and did this thing with in this location, right? And probably for this reason, and that's cool all by itself. It doesn't have to, I don't have to know any more about that person. And I think it's helped me to kind of step back and say that, like, I can interpret just so much. And then I have to ask myself, do I have evidence of that thing I just came up with? Or am I just making that shit up? <laughs> you know? <laughs> have you gone any digs? Are you going to go any digs? No, I haven't gotten any digs yet, but I have to. I'm in my theoretical senior year. I say these things like <laughs> I am in I am the slowest uh, bachelor's degree on earth right now. But I take one class a semester because, you know, I have a big full time job. Yeah. And, um, but I. I am coming into I have one more class that I can take that I'm currently taking and then I have to start like doing some field work. Yeah. So that's my next thing. Excited? But I live in New Mexico, and yeah. there are there's no end to field work I could do here. So I assume I'm there was a connection. You know, I mean, it's yeah, it's endless out there. You're you're surrounded endless. by great indigenous artifacts and structures, exactly. and oh, that's amazing. That is amazing. Exactly. Oh, learn to thank you so much. This has been such a great conversation. I really, really appreciate you taking the time. Um, I want to ask you if there are any. Pitch your thing. Is there anything you want to pitch to this audience? Anything you want to leave them with? It can be work. Oh, it can be whatever. I know you asked me. You asked me to think about that, and I, <laughs> I, uh, I, you know, I think the only thing I would want to leave people with is, look, I don't. I I really just want to remind everybody, I guess, especially at this point in our tech industry and where we are with the tech economy is that and it relates to the whole archaeology discussion too is that if there's one quality humans have always had and still have its fortitude mm. we can get through this you can help us whoever it is that's listening to this you can help us get through this this there is never any reason to panic or worry because here we are. We've been here for hundreds of thousands of years and we will find our way through this part too. So anyway, that's, 
I think that's what I would want to leave people with. That's a hell of a thing to leave people with. I, I love that. Thank you so much. And, and once again, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. I loved it. It was so great to talk to you, Rob. The more we study our past, the more we realize we're part of a much bigger story and that all of us deserve a chance to add our own voices to that chorus. Thank you so much again, Lorinda, for taking the time to share with us today. And thank you for inviting us between your ears. Talk at you soon. The Compiling Podcast is produced, written, published, hosted, and copyrighted by Rob Sisweta. All opinions expressed belong to the individuals expressing them and not necessarily the organizations to which they belong. To find show notes and listen to additional episodes, please visit compiling.publicgeeking.com. Talk to you soon!